Hello everybody and welcome back to another episode of Terry Talks Fiction. Today we've got a book review and we'll be talking about the book The Gilded Ones by Namina Fauna. The Gilded Ones is a story about a young girl named Dacre who, just before going through the ritual of purity at her village, the traditional coming of age for a young girl to prove that her blood is not the impure gold of a demon, but rather the sort of red-blooded humans that one would expect, reveals to everyone during a attack on her village that her blood is in fact golden, and that she does carry what their religion considers the curse of demonhood upon her. After spending months in a cellar of the village, being hacked into pieces and sewn back together again by her amazing regenerative powers, Dacre is rescued and taken to a specialist training camp. It turns out that the Emperor, that rules Dacre's village amongst many other places, is forming an elite fighting squad out of the demon girls that are littered about his empire, so that he can take them to finally, once and for all, eliminate the Death Shriek threat. The horrifying monsters that can kill regular people with just a scream, and who are the ones that attacked Dacre's village at the beginning of the book. With a promise of personal revenge and clemency, from the Emperor for what Dacre sees as her innate failings, she grows in sisterhood with the other demon girls at the training camp, eventually learning to use her unique abilities to completely obliterate the Death Shriek threat. But not everything is as it seems, and Dacre is going to have to make a choice between her Emperor and her sisters, and her understanding of who she is on the inside, is going to play a major role in that decision. And first off, let me start by saying that I really, really enjoyed this book. I felt it had a really great theme. The themes are very in-your-face and incredibly difficult to, uh, to ignore as you're reading. And I'll get back to just how critically that reflects on social issues that are present in the world at the moment but most importantly of all, the story is a real fan- it's a real power fantasy. It's, it's taking this small girl from a small village and through you know, training and a try-fail cycle, it builds her up into something really powerful. And it's really interesting because that sort of power fantasy is, honestly, that's usually something that's reserved for male protagonists. Even in a lot of the very female-led fantasy that I have read, it often seems that because the central character is female, the book normally takes a different approach to things to show, you know, well, that's how the boy fantasy does it, but this is how girl fantasy does it, and it's it's different, and we don't focus on just getting, you know, power level and being able to just steamroll anybody that you want. That's a very boy thing. Girl's power is different. It's more subtle, or it's focused more on emotional caring, or things like that. Which, even as I say it now, it sounds like it plays into some very familiar tropes that we have traditionally been brought up to believe about boys versus girls. 
or it can swing very hard the other way and just uh, have a girl who is very good at punching uh, or whatever the magical equivalent is, and that will be that. So you're taking the idea of a strong female character, listening to the first word of the sentence and then just doing basically a gender flip of your standard punch em up superhero boy fantasy. But this one manages to do a very traditional power fantasy storytelling with a female character that feels sort of natural and normal and really engaging and really... It feels like an overuse of the word to say powerful, but it is. It really just brings the idea... It's a it's pure escapist fantasy, taking all the things that must be frustrating to young women who are reading this book and just giving them a character who can just cathartically, when they see a problem, just destroy it without making her a Mary Sue or without making her just really good at magical punching. And I think a lot of that has to do with when Amina Fauna chose to focus the exploration of Dacre's power set. Because we have a book that's full of girls who are these the golden-blooded demon girls, or as they're called by their sisters, the Alari, rather than the demons, and it gives them all sorts of powers. They do have the super strength, they have the super speed, they have incredible focus where time can seem to slow down around them because they're in their, they're in their battle state and everything is just running at superhuman levels. They have all that. They also have the ability to regenerate from basically any injury, apart from one. Each of these girls have one way that will kill them, their final death, and everything else will just sort of put them into what they call the gilded sleep, which is where their golden blood takes over and heals their wounds. So for someone who might be able to survive decapitation, for instance, having their you know their head sort of rolls back to their body and seams up again and after a week of gilded sleep, they're right to go again. That same person, if they're stabbed through the heart, may die because the that's their weak point. That's their final death. And you have examples in the book of that of people stabbed in the uh, in the abdomen and bleeding out from there because that's that's their their kill spot, or having their spine ripped out, or very very graphic, horrible deaths. And you have the central character who can seemingly survive pretty much anything. The book starts, uh, as alluded to there in the intro, with her being just cut up into pieces in a cellar room over and over again for weeks or months. She loses track of time while this is happening because it just seems like as soon as she's back together again, here come the village elders carrying their buckets and their machetes just glee dancing in their eyes because they can see their payday coming if they chop her up and harvest the gold from her blood. And it's really tempting to then sort of focus on those parts of the power set and have someone who is very good at magically punching. But instead, Fauna focuses the entire book around Daker's voice. Because along with all these other powers, Daker is unique in that she has a power in her voice which enables her to command the Death Shrieks, the boogeyman of the book, the horrifying spined monsters with long claws and also super strength that will just run through and 
entire communities and just kill everybody and who pop up cyclically in the book as antagonists and are the focus of the emperor's attention who wants to wipe them out which is the whole purpose behind setting up this force of alari and training them to be soldiers Dacre becomes sort of their key weapon because she can just walk into a death streak nest and command them all to kneel while everybody else just goes around lopping off heads and with no risk to themselves. And it's really interesting the way that this book plays with theme, which I'm going to get to very, very soon, because it's no accident that Dacre's power is her voice. This is a book that is very focused on on female issues, the plight of women in patriarchal societies. And it is no accident at all that the very first time Dacre speaks up, the very first time she uses her voice in this society, she is killed. She's cut up, she's cut down, and the book moves on from there. And it's impossible to mistake the significance of that because her voice is such a central part of her character going forward and she is the character who can affect change in this society it's not subtle at all it's powerful though and it is really engaging to read this entire book is one of those situations where it's not dressing things up in allegory it uses allegory really well and fantasy as a genre is exceedingly good at using allegory and metaphor in order to bring social and political issues into a work of fiction, but sort of smuggle them in, sort of hide them in the envelope of something else. You can have the the discussion of why Christianity is so great and Jesus is so good and always on your side through the Chronicles of Narnia, with Aslan being just a representation of Christ, and the entire the run, the entire series of books going through basically different parts of the Bible, right up to the ending of the world in the final book, just being a pastiche of revelations. And you can go from the, that incredible extreme all the way over to things like the treatment of house elves in Harry Potter, being a very sort of thinly veiled, hardly dealt with, exploration of slavery and ownership of sentient beings. And there are a million other examples, but I picked those two specifically because they're pretty good examples of, they're good examples of the really extreme and the really light touch, but both in books which are directed at a younger audience. And The Gilded Ones is a book that's directed at a young adult readership. But while it does use the allegorical parts of fantasy, because obviously you've got the Alari themselves, who are women, yes, but also are something different, something that's considered to be non-human. That in itself is really is an allegory for the way that certain patriarchal systems will view women. The idea of a class of people being seen as subhuman and treated as such, even though that society is relying on them, is a very allegorical statement. And things like the Death Shrieks and what they are and what they end up standing for, the fantastical beasts, 
that are present in the story. We've got shapeshifters and hybrid centaurs and other named but unseen creatures that exist in this world, all filling out the fantasy aesthetic. But when it comes to the key issues of the book, this book does not dress it up or attempt to smuggle it in via these allegories. It is very clear that this is a a feminist work, and it is focused on the idea of women pushing back against a patriarchal system, and just it does not shy away at all at the brutalities that that system will perpetuate on anyone who challenges it, whether they be female or male. Because there are examples of both in the book, particularly where it comes to the end with Dacre's partner and love interest. And by not shying away from this, by not sort of blinking when you're staring at the abyss and just putting all of these elements in the book in your face, it makes it very powerful. And it makes it really interesting to watch Dacre continually coming up against these barriers and seeing her find the strength to power through them. There's a lot of potential for like you know, that fantasy catharsis in seeing this reflected, because there must be a lot of people who are in Dacre's position almost literally throughout the glo- across the globe today, regardless of what society that or country you're growing up in. There are a lot of barriers, and watching someone just come up against them and on the page in front of you, declare that this is ridiculous and they won't stand for it. It feels really good. Even for, you know, for this middle-aged white cis male reading the book, it feels really empowering and really satisfying to watch her go through these barriers. And it's really good because that, that central naked theme of the book is reinforced by all of the world building around it. The society is incredibly believable because it leans on cultural paradigm and religion sort of as the two central pillars for around which this just continual oppression of women is perpetuated. And while it was really funny to, in 2021, be reading a book about women who are culturally required to wear face masks um, and seeing Dacre's just her real grief at knowing that she won't be allowed to wear a face mask because she is impure and she's not she doesn't have any purity to you know to shield away from from the male gaze but also for that face mask to be the top half of the face and not the bottom half of the face it was really quite it was really quite amusing but it was really relatable as well you can you can understand a lot more about mask wearing uh, these days in you know in Western society than you perhaps you could have uh, five years ago. But this using those two pillars to build the world around, like the entire social order of this book, is structured around the systemic oppression of half of its population, and the way that the book plays off those elements to show even other women oppressing other women over these cultural traits and these religious norms is very reflective uh, as well of what we see in across society today and by really doubling down on this through every element of the structure of the narrative 
it makes it super clear to the reader that that is what this book is about. It, there's, as I said, there, it is not dressing this in allegory. It's using allegory to front and center the issue and make just, there are, leave no bones about the fact that this is what we're talking about. So when you add on top the fact that this book has a genuinely engaging narrative drive and a really interesting magic system and mythological past which bears into it, it's a real pleasure to read. And it's highly engaging. It's I did not want to put this book down once I picked it up. From the opening chapters, from the very first moment when we were leading up to the ritual of purity, I was engaged with this book because the strength of the religion and the strength of the social order, the way that from the first pages you can see, oh, this is terrible. This is really awful. What a what a shitty way to live. But you can also see at the same time how deeply Dacre has bought into this and how deeply she wants it and genuinely wants it. She genuinely wants to be pure so that she can mask up and get a husband and perform her role in society. And there is genuine grief when all that comes crashing down. And even as she's getting, she is getting decapitated by her father. She is worried about what this is going to do to his social standing. You know, it's from the, those, those first two to three chapters, you deal with so much from honor killings to purity culture to the way that the the women in this society how they choose to support and denigrate each other for their own social cachet it's really stark and in its starkness it's really compelling and as we're sort of we're getting well into and well through the review at this point i feel like there are a couple of points i want to touch on as well in the scope in the spirit of fairness which didn't sit as well for me, uh, I have to admit. While all of that, all of those parts of the narrative which we've discussed, which related to the theme and the themes themselves and the way that was explored, were really, really good, it does feel like the book goes on a few chapters too many. I was reading this on my on my phone, a digital copy, and. Just as such, it's always harder for me to gauge where we are in a book. It's not like having a hard copy in front of you and you can see, oh, there's still, you know, a hundred pages left to go at this point when I'm reading something. And there's a point towards the end of the book where it feels like the book ends. It feel it crescendos to this great climactic reveal moment, and the you know, the horrible stuff happens, the triumphant stuff happens, and Dacre is whisked away on horseback, and there's a uh, there's a, a little scene after that where some of the key parts of the novel, the key mysteries, are explained, and Dacre is put into a into an area to convalesce to heal herself uh, uh, for a period of time. And I felt so satisfied, and I was so geared up. Wow. I know this is part of the series. I know this is the first book in the series, and I can't wait to see where this goes next. And then the book just kept going. I it's I just I was really expecting it to finish there. It seemed like a really great, appropriate cliffhanger point to end the book. And it's just, but there was more. 
and I couldn't tell how much more because I was reading it digitally and I'm, as I said, I'm terrible at gauging how far through you are. But it just kept going and it just kept going. And the stuff that came after it was, was interesting, but it was nowhere near as satisfying as that moment which we'd passed, the, 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 that climax. And when the book finally did finish, it had that, that extra bit of it had sort of sucked the wind out of my sails a bit. It, it sort of sapped my excitement because we'd gone from what seemed like a really pivotal, exciting moment and then had this very long epilogue, which will lead on to uh, the next few books. And it's hard for me to sort of guess where the next few books are going to go, which is good in a way, but also a little worrying in another. Because this book was so well structured around theme and really it was had that it had a laser focus on the message it was trying to convey throughout then these final few chapters completely shift the narrative focus of that message all of the mystery that is built up in the preceding novel is explained it's told to the reader in this little package at the end and that's never as satisfying as discovering things yourself and it's doubly disappointing because the book had done a really, really good job of weaving the mystery through the entire novel up to that point when we just... It is very realistic to have someone convalescing from a grievous injury and have the other another person who has been holding secrets from them sort of sit down by their bedside and say, okay, listen, since you're going to be here for a while... I'm just going to tell you everything that's been going on. That's what you would expect to happen if someone had had a car crash and someone else who'd been keeping things from them came down and just decided, look, this is a horrible situation. You're stuck in this bed for a while. Let me just, can I just clear everything up so that when you're out of here, we can just, we can go on from a starting point. It's expected. It's normal. It's terrible in fiction. Because although I'll sort of rant and rail and rave against the you know the traditional TV style of someone you know traveling across town to walk into a cafe and deliver two lines of pithy fu to the person that they're having a disagreement with and then walk out without hearing them say any sort of explanation back. This is too far on the other extreme. And it's a brilliant thing to do between books. Having her sit down, this character, sit down next to Dacre and say, okay, I'll tell you everything. And then that's the final page of the book with maybe a very short epilogue after to tease us for what's going into the next book now that Dacre has this knowledge is wonderful. That would be really effective. And using the first few chapters of the next book just to to show the reader how Dakin now understands things and she is operating with full knowledge and use the context clues of that to teach the reader what has been revealed. Well, it is, that's a really good way of doing things that other books have done. And Bucking the trend of how other books have done things seems to be this book's forte. So it's interesting to see that bucking the trend in this case, for me personally, felt like a bit of a stumble right at the finish line. 
And I do understand why it's been done in the scope of the narrative, because I understand that they this book ties everything up so that the rest of the series can continue. And perhaps I'm carrying a little chip on my shoulder from just being so surprised by the way that the entire narrative focus shifted in the final couple of chapters and everything, everything got resolved and wrapped up in this book. So there doesn't seem to be anything hanging over for the rest of the series to explore. But I really was expecting the start of the next series to be now the Emperor and his armies are in this place and they are searching and this book is about fighting them while they're doing that search and that second book ends with the scenes that this first book ended with. And maybe that sort of whiplash of not getting that which I was expecting is colouring my interpretation a bit, but Look, I have enough faith based on how well the rest of this book was written that the following books in the series will deal with their own issues in a really, really good way and it'll be a satisfying read. This book certainly is a satisfying read even with what I would consider to be a stumble at the finish line. But I'm not, I just don't see where it's going to go, which, as I said, is both a good and a bad thing. So I guess if I had to give my final thoughts on this book, it would be that this is a really powerfully told story with a really important message at its core, and it does not shy away from the realistic brutality that comes when you try to challenge a system like the system in this book. It doesn't gild the truth, it just shows you. Yes, if you have women in this situation, they will be raped. Yes, if you have someone speaking up like this, they will be killed. Yes, it's dangerous. Yes, it's horrible. And that's why it needs to be changed. And by showing the extremes of this, hopefully it helps people who are not in such extreme conditions find the strength and the courage to speak out and to stand up. And I feel that's what this book is for, and I feel that this book really succeeds in empowering its readers. So if you like great fantasy, this is a good read, because the world building and the magic system and the monsters and the villainy are really, really engaging. If you like political drama, this is also a good book, because what's going on between White Hands and... Dacre and the Emperor and just the religion and society is really engaging. And if you like books with a message and a strong message, or if you have young women in your household, this would be a great book because it deals with real world issues in a fantasy setting without hiding those issues behind allegory. And it's all the more powerful because it does so. But if you have read the book already, do you agree with that interpretation? I've seen a lot of people uh, comment that they couldn't find a real connection with the central characters of this book, particularly with Dacre. And even my my podcast collaborator on the other podcasts I do, uh, Science, Sex and Sorcery, or S3, uh, Belinda Misson is a romance writer and didn't 
have that same connection with the narrative and the characters that I did. We'll be getting into that in real detail on our next S3 podcast, which you can find just by searching for S3 pod or site Sex and Sorcery. It's available on all the same podcatchers that Terry Talks Fiction is available on. Or you can let us know on the Discord server, Talking Fiction. There will be a link to that in the show notes. If you've had a different interpretation of the text, or if those themes and the narrative didn't hit the same way for you as it did for me. I'd really love to hear about that and get into a discussion of the reasons why. And there was so much here too I didn't even get to touch on, like the romance subplot. And I didn't really talk about the political angle or how Dacre is trying to sift the facts from the lies as she goes through and find out really what she is being used for and whose agenda she's serving whenever she makes an action. It's really compelling and engaging stuff. So if you want to continue that conversation, then I'm really here for it. Please do. But for now, we'll end the podcast for today. And until the next time, I hope that you read, watch, or experience a really great story. And I look forward to talking about it with you again soon.